Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Welcome to Off the Shelf. The second life radio show and podcast about books and the people who love them. I'm Kegia Gerardi. And this is Simeon Beresford. Join us as we survey the literary scene in our virtual world. Welcome to Off the Shelf. Our guest today is fantasy author Jani Wirtz. Yes, she's speaking over a landline. Thankfully, she's come. She sounds perfectly good to me. Jani's moved. <laughs> Jani has more than twenty books on her resume, including the Empire series and the War, Wars of Light and Shadow. She's also a talented artist who creates the covers for her novels. Welcome to the show, Jani. I'm delighted to be here, off the wall with you people at Off the Shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jani. I'm going to start the interview with a very hard question. You are not one to write the same book twice, but can you give our audience a sense of what they might expect from your books? If there's one quality that I prize above almost anything, it's the unexpected. If I have a huge pet beef, it's that too many books start with a beautiful bang and then don't deliver. Series that don't deliver. Books that you hit an ending and it's disappointing. So I would say this about mine. The opening point is the low point. They build very carefully. They reach a climactic point about halfway through where what you think you see coming is going to take a sharp left turn. The problem might be solved and change. The problem might hit a new set of depth, and then they become relentless in pace until you hit the end, and there always is a satisfying ending. So that's probably something to think about is that sort of one-two punch with a half-point shift and everything is geared for delivery as the books get further and further or a series gets further and further, it's going to gather pace. It's not going to slip backwards and dissipate. Direction, direction's the key. You know where you're going. So you started as so many science fiction and fantasy authors do with short stories. How did the transition to novels come about? Well, actually, I think you have it backwards. I started with massive ideas for novels, reversed into short stories to sharpen my craft. I actually broke into publishing with one short story, and that editor turned around and asked me for a novel, but at that point I had five or six or seven complete books, four of which had never been submitted. And I had actually the Light and Shadow series well underway at that point, but I was wise enough to know it was too big and too wide and too much to tackle at that stage of my career. So I held it back until I had five or six books down and a good solid track record, probably more than five or six, before I finally cut it loose and put it on the market. So were you develop it, developing it, honing it behind the scenes, or were you, um, or, or were you happy with the, way, with the way it was already and you just waited for the market to develop? When I started with the idea, it was just, I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I took off and went to college. I was working on it. I had large chunks of it in progress at that point. 
I was told there's no market for this. I was discouraged by absolutely everybody saying, don't bother. But, of course, at that time, Betty Ballantyne was doing the Ballantyne Fantasy Series, and I said, I think there's going to be a place for this when the right time comes about. So I simply worked on it in the background for 20 years while working on other books and other projects. Yes, the 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 big fantasy things were just starting to 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 appear. They hadn't they hadn't even hit yet. At the time I was intensely working on this, this was we're talking in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, well, I think I think the Ballantine series was was what started the bell rolling. The, oh, absolutely. We owe everything and everything to Ian and Betty Ballantyne and a few other pioneers, but we wouldn't have the modern fantasy genre we do today without their taking chances and putting this stuff in print. So um, so how did you pick the one that you picked? How did you pick um, uh, when she said, I want a, a novel and you had five or six on the shelf waiting to go? Well, as far as when me. did I choose the moment and feel the moment was right? Well, 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 what made you pick the one that you did? Why why did you go, oh, it was Sorcerer's Legacy, wasn't it? Oh, the first book, the first book that I sold. Well, that's almost a joke. You know, people say, well, where do your ideas come from? This was silly. This was absolutely silly. Um, I was working with a small group of writers in Philadelphia, you know, sort of a, we get together with all the junk food and candy on a Saturday afternoon and have a writer's workshop. And I had bits of the light and shadows going. I had bits of Master of White Storms going. That was originally a, a pile of short stories that got novelized. And one day it was really, really hot. And I was sending paintings over to the World Fantasy Convention in London to exhibit there and I had an agent taking the paintings over and I didn't want old work going over because uh, my abilities were evolving so fast that only the newest work was suitable to show. So I had a painting on the easel and I had no air conditioning. I was living in a carriage house apartment on this farm that was owned by Daniel Mannix, also an author. And I was cooking, hot, no air conditioning. These were field hands quarters with old fashioned windows, no insulation in the roof. So I painted this snow scene with uh, a woman in a dress and a wizard literally making a spell with an ice bridge going out. And it had nothing to do with any story. It was just sitting there. And the agent taking the paintings over had to fill the customs forms out three months in advance. And she kept saying to me, how much are you charging to sell this painting? And I'm going, it's not for sale. I don't want to sell it. It isn't finished. And I don't want to put a price tag on it until it's done. Well, she had to take the painting ahead. And I had to fill the jewels in with colored pencil because there wasn't time for the paint to dry. So I didn't want to sell an unfinished picture to somebody, so I told her not for sale. Well, she didn't get the message. She kept saying, how much is this? i got to put a price tag on it. The only way to get her off that track was to tell her, well, there's a story attached. So I sat down really quick, scribbled out 18 pages, stuck this heroine in so much deep crap that she would never get out. 18-page fragment, slammed it in the file box, said, there we go, now it has a story attached, can't sell a painting. Well, that got her off my back. Uh-huh. In the meantime, here comes the writer's workshop. It's the middle of July, it's 103 degrees, it's so hot, nobody has done any writing. They're sitting in my apartment with all these melted M&Ms, saying, we know you've got something in that huge file box, we can see the paper sticking out, and I thought, I'll fix their wagon. <laughs> so, I pulled out this 
18-page fragment and threw it in front of him and said, here, read that. And I'm snickering. I mean, this is a big joke. Well, yeah, they loved yeah. it. They absolutely <laughs> loved it. And they said, wow, this is really a good story. What happens? And I go, I don't know. Ha, ha, ha. She'll never get out of this. And then I had this idea. Well, yeah, there is a way for her to get out of it. So I thought, well, why not? So I started to write it. And that story sold immediately which is kind of funny, even though it had time travel in it and the editors were going flippy because you didn't put time travel in a fantasy. This just didn't happen back then. Oh. In fact, I have a very beautiful, frameable letter from God bless him, Lester Del Rey, explaining that he couldn't possibly buy this because it was a science fiction concept stuck in a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. yeah. the odd thing about Sorcerer's Legacy is it, it has a history to it. I never expected to write that kind of book. So it's sort of this offbeat little thing that I flung out for the fun of it. But Sorcerer's Legacy is what caught Ray's attention, and that's what made him ask me to do The Empire. Ah. Uh -huh. So that was going to be my ne ne next question, actually. It was, and I'm laughing my head off, because what you wanted to know what Ray thought I could bring to the table, what nobody knows about the origin of The Empire, is that Ray wrote Magician, he sold it to Doubleday, he, he's told the story many a time about how he panicked because he didn't see it in any bookstore, so he got in his car and drove the link to the California coast and talked to every single bookstore he could find, mm -hmm. and he got the book to sell out. Now, it was a very small press run back then. That's why the book is a collector's item now. Yes. When that book came out, the paperback rights bounced all around, and they finally sold to Pinnacle, and then Pinnacle never exercised the contract. So at the time that Magician came out, I guess Don Mates did the cover for the book club edition. And Don mentioned my stuff, and Ray read it. So Ray started to talk to me back then. In the meantime, Pinnacle outs on the contract. He has no paperback, no mass market plans in this country at all. He's kind of bouncing around not knowing what to do. And he starts asking me, gee, do you, know, do you want to do this collaboration? It's got, a, it's got a heroine in it, and I don't feel comfortable writing a woman. And I said, well, Ray, you know, this isn't too hard. All you do is write it, and then you hand it to somebody. And we look at it, and we tell you where you screwed up. So I said, I don't mind doing that. And then he said, well, I have the beginning of this story, and I have the end of this story, which was the end of Servant, actually, and nothing in the middle. And I said, well, Ray, that's no big deal. You know, ideas just start working the idea it'll come to you and if you want to and he said well I really admired how you did the politics with the smoke and mirrors and sorcerer legacy and he went on about how and he's told this story many times in public so I'm not telling anybody anything new how in his magician there were illogical progressions in the war and the only way he could explain it at the time was to say well you had to be Sorani to understand it so in fact there were huge areas of the politics in that world that were only vaguely designed at, you know and he designed some of it in the second half of magician but he didn't really go into it so he said well he wanted this machiavellian kind of politics and i said well ray you know call up and we'll just talk and we'll get some ideas and just use them you write the book i don't want to do this this went on for two years until finally i realized the light went on gee this is really a cool story and it won't be quite the same unless we both work on it so i caved in and I said, okay, even though it meant putting all of my other projects on hold. And I had, at this point, four books out, and I was writing on my fifth. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot going on, and I was thinking of, you know, getting Light and Shadow started. And 
here I am doing this collaboration, and a lot of people, including editors, got up and said to me, don't do this. Not a wise move for your career. And, and I called up my then agent at the time, and I said, what do I do? All these people are telling me, don't do this project. And they had their reasons, and they, they sounded pretty sound as business readings. And the agent gave me the wisest advice in the world. She said, what does your heart tell you? I said, my heart tells me it's a fun story, and I want to do it. So we did it. Yeah. And what, what it paid off in spades was the odd thing. By the time Ray got Darkness at Stefan on into hardback, it hit the times list. And he did go on and sell his paperback rights. Now, I'm not sure exactly what came first in the timing anymore. He'd have to straighten you out. But suddenly we had a property that was worth something in its later stages. But the advance and the, the beginning of Daughter, um, when we first sold Daughter, it wasn't considered to be anything much at all. And he went backwards on his advance, you know, so it was it was really a not a much of a project. It was sort of a sidetrack thing. But I think there's a perception out there that it was the other way around, that I was a junior writer, didn't know anything, and he came along to get me to do this project, and it, it was quite not like that at all. Well, it sounds like you've got the right, you had the right agent at the right time as well. She gave me a very sound and solid piece of advice, and it could be that I would have come around to it, but it's not very easy when you're a young writer. I mean, I had four four novels or so going, but I'd also had to switch publishers once and switched agent, you know, editors a couple of times. Things have not been smooth for me that way. You know, sometimes the luck runs easy, and sometimes it runs hard. Yeah. Um, so it was hard for me, and as a as a single woman, living and working alone, and paying for myself the whole way and nobody to rely on in any way but myself and my own responsibilities. Um, it, it was a difficult choice to make when I had solid people in my career telling me, don't do this, it's not a wise move. That gives you pause. So she encouraged me to listen to my heart and there have been many times in my career where I have stuck in my feet and listened to my heart, including buying a book back that already was sold. So that it yeah. could come out. What? I'm sorry. Uh, carry on. Carry on. So yeah, there have been times in my career where I've had to make the maverick choice and step out of the pack and say, "I'm doing this. Heck or high water, it's happening this way." Um, and there have been times I've stood down, pretty wise people telling me what to do, and I'm just going, "Nope, this isn't happening that way." So um, so. Raymond didn't think he could handle writing women's points of view. Mm. I think you, he you didn't d feel confident at that time because the entire concept of that novel was the woman's point of view. It's the threat to her family that makes her change the society. Yes. She doesn't want the ambition. She doesn't want the glory. She really could care less about... I mean, she wanted to keep the honor of her family name, but the real, the real crunch point in that series comes to the point where she's forced to seize power to change, to save her children. And to make her children secure, she has to change the rules of a male-dominated society. So, in a way, it is a woman's story. I have been told in broken English that it's subversive women's literature in Japan, and Ray and I neither... Neither of us set out to do that. It shocked us both. That's a nice thing to know, though, isn't it? Good for you. It sort of made me kind of happy to think of, you know, they were telling me that, that literally women would sit around the kitchen table over there and 
someone would translate for others that couldn't read English. Nice. Of course, we never sold the second two volumes into Japanese simply because that's the point where Mars starts changing the culture. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, oh, <laughs> I've lost my place now. <laughs> I, when I look at um, when I when I read Daughter of Empire, I remember thinking of Midkemia as as um, Raymond Feist's world and Kellowen as you as was this the way it was? Was or did you collaborate equally on both? How much how much of Kellowan was your influence? How much was Raymond's? When we sat down just to write the book, the only blueprint that we had between us was the second half of Magician. That was it. Very tight and difficult politics, but he never got into the workings of how it worked. From that stage forward, we worked together to create it. And, of course, he's taken it further than it was at the end of Empire. He's continued. I mean, we had a clear contract. It was his world that we were designing. But I wouldn't say it was definitively mine over his at all. It It was a true collaboration in every sense of the word where we both did... 150% 150% of the effort, if that makes sense. Yeah. Were you writing, when you were collaborating, were you actually sitting together writing or sending things back and forth via mail? How did you two work it together? We sat down face-to-face at World Fantasy, and in four hours we hammered out the plot that became daughter and servant together. Then he flew out east once and I flew out west once and we created the first chapter. At that point we submitted and sold it. Mm -hmm. After that point there was very little time that we actually spent face to face and I think one of the successful points that really worked between us was computer technology was just getting going. We were sending files by modem back in those days. So e-files, we would we each sat down with the outline and said, well, I want to write this section or you want to write that section, and we kind of divvied which areas we wanted to start with. So we wrote the book out of sequence, and then we swapped files electronically. Now the advantage to this was I would get a raw file from Ray, and I would just write over it or write into it, and he would write over and into my things, and we never saw the sheets of paper with this black stuff crossed out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You didn't see what you lost. You only saw what came back at you better. And we probably exchanged each set of files maybe four times. We probably each went over the whole manuscript and on our own six times. So you can no longer tell who drafted what. You might have a vague idea of, of who did this or that, but the ideas each got overwritten and embroidered and interlaced that you can't tell who did what anymore. So it's the whole process was seamless from the outside. Uh, the reader should get one kind of style all the way through because it's really an amalgamation of the both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it clicked. And did you learn, what, what did you learn from the collaborating? Did it influence the, your later approach to writing? Not a bit because the laugh of it is I was so well established on my own track with my own style and my own way of doing things when I worked with Ray, it didn't change how I work at all. Mm -hmm. What it taught me is 
when you collaborate with somebody, you absolutely have to let go. It's no longer your thing anymore. It's both of your thing. And if you're able to do that and put your ego aside, you get a wonderful blend. But if you get the wrong person and they're too stubborn or rock-headed, we were each generous with each other's strengths, if that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I knew yeah. what Ray's strengths were as a writer. I knew the things he did better than me, and I'm not going to mess with that stuff. And he asked me in for certain strengths I had, and he was smart enough not to mess with that stuff, if that makes sense. Would yeah. you collaborate again with somebody? And if so, who? what, what writer would it, you think would, would be fun to collaborate with? I would collaborate again if I could get a working relationship where the other person had the respect. I think what saved us from having headlongs was we each respected each other's storytelling abilities solidly. I'd read all his work, you know, once Don got me a read magician, and once Ray said, gee, you want to collaborate? I read everything he had done extant on the ground at the time, and he had read everything I had done. So we had that respect, and when we did actually have head-ons about, well, I think this plot point should resolve this way, and he said he thinks the plot point should resolve that way, we worked it out by finding a third way. We never caved into the other guy's point. We said, well, there's got to be a better way if I won't agree and you won't agree. And we kept going until we found that third option. And it was always better than what either he or I were passionately wedded to. So I'd say there has to be a good chemistry and a lot of respect for ability because I don't think senior-junior type collaborations work as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on your website, you, you mentioned that you'd been working on The Wars of Light and Shadow since you were at least 18, if not even earlier. But you mentioned on your website that the documentary film about the Battle of Cullendon Moor was an inspiration for you. I'm not very familiar with that battle, so would you tell us what it was about and how that inspired the story? It was much more than just an inspiration. I think it was a turning point in my life. Wow. Basically, I was in college. I was researching intensely tactics and weapons and certain period things because when I built the world of Athera, there are technological stays where things can't develop past a certain point for a very cogent reason. Evolution has gone in a different direction there. The world operates differently for a good reason, and that's one of the things I'm not going to say because it unveils as the series goes forward. So I was having to mix and match periods because the technology stopped short of this, but it continued until that. And so, say, the ships are more developed than some of the weapons are. So I was researching very carefully the period of most every war that was fought between the Romans and up until rifling gunpowder began to change how things were built. So I had just finished like six or eight months of massive reading into warfare, technology, how, how tactics or one slight thing like the weather could alter a battle severely. And I had just finished all this research where, you know, the winner was always delineated, and you could very clearly see by the research why that side won. And then I saw this film on Culloden. Now, Culloden has been romanticized. You know, it's all the Bonnie Prince Charlie. It was the Scots Rebellion that moved Mm -hmm. south and practically... It could have gone on and taken London. I mean, it stormed York. 
it really got the guys in Britain shook up and scared. In fact, if you want to see how scared, go and see the Fort William that they built on the North Shore of Scotland to keep the Highland clans in order and all the deporting that went on after that. I mean, it dismantled the clan system. That one more, when you actually saw this documentary, it was done in black and white. It was done strictly by fact. It showed a ragged band of very poor people, mostly conscripted, forced to fight. They'd been sitting out in the sleet and the cold and the weather for days. Their superior officers were indecisive, arguing and fighting, and basically they were very badly led. Prince Charlie was an idiot. They were forced to sit out in the sleet and the snow, and then they were thrown into battle where the superior officers never gave the order to charge. And they took withering gunfire cannons, steel shot, you name it, and it just cut them down. It cut them down. Only one portion of the northern, the one portion of the line actually charged, and that had the most survivors. There were so many bodies, they literally had to dig mass graves. I saw this movie, and it just completely tore me apart. I went out crying. I went out shaken to my roots. The reason being that every history book, every factual book, every documentary, every book, every fantasy had romanticized war as a solution to a problem. And when I dropped this documentary, which showed the brutal reality over top of all of this distanced research that really showed the right side doesn't always win. The right side who do you know? How do you know what the right side is? The other guys got killed. Mm-hmm. It was tactics or superior numbers or superior ground or luck or fate or bad leadership, you name it. But absolutely, war never solved a problem. And I came out of there angry to my core that I had been hoodwinked by entertainment and history courses in school to ever believe for two seconds that war solved anything at all. I can't believe that we're still going on as a human beings and deluded that this is a solution to anything when our imaginations and our ability to invent other solutions have been present since the dawn of time. Why are we fixated on this? So here I was writing this huge epic fantasy, and of course all up until Tolkien and you name it. Now Tolkien, his point is different. I'm not going to belittle that book at all. Um, He was writing the big epic battle. But I said, I'm not doing this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take apart this ridiculous notion that war solves anything, and I'm going to write a book that's going to make you laugh, make you cry, make you absolutely get torn apart until you bleed on the page because you're going to see two sides of a conflict and you're going to realize they're but for the grace. If you weren't informed of what was really happening, you would fall for the big government line. Now, there is no big government, but you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The big hero, so the big blonde hero might not be everything he's talked up to be. But I'm not going to leave it there, but that's another story. You know, the whole thing is, this is a different kind of mythscape. So you're not going to glorify the epic battle. It is not going to glorify the last stand and the glory at the end. It is not going to be that. It is a different mythscape. Well, as you mentioned, you're doing more than one side in, in the series. So how do you feel the fantasy genre allows you to explore those facets versus writing a history, for example? I don't want to write a history for a simple reason that, as it is, every reader brings their baggage to the table, good and bad. 
when you write a real world, if I wrote this as a real world history or an alternate history or a whatever, closely tied to this culture or this earth or any culture on this earth, I'm automatically going to get the knee-jerk template of the beliefs. Whereas if I write it completely unconnected to here and now, I can deal with these issues with the gloves off and not get hate mail, not have the prejudice come to the table. So it isn't going to be a two-by-four between the eyes on somebody's personal and very cherished religious belief system or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be dealing with their sacred ground. But I can take that sacred ground revamp it and get in there to the elbow with the gloves off and not offend. Does that make sense? Yeah. So absolutely at the visceral level where this book really is, is geared to strike, I could not do that in any way as a mainstream book mm-hmm. or a history book or a whatever. It couldn't be done. Not with the clarity that I can bring to the table as a fantasy. So I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily glorifying the fantasy genre, but I'm saying this is where this work of literature belongs. Mm-hmm. It gives you the toolbox you need. Excuse me. I said it gives you the toolbox you need. It gives me the freedom yeah. to discard all of the judgmental prejudice that I would be fighting. And so yes. I can address that judgmental prejudice with the gloves off, and maybe the reader will get foxed into not realizing until suddenly, oh, they wake up. Mm-hmm. Or they yes. read it for sheer entertainment and, and just license them not to pay any attention to that. They don't have the defenses up. They're not going, yes, but, uh, for instance, Clodden, as far as I'm concerned, is um, the, the Scots role where very romantic, but as far as I'm concerned, it, it uh, if this if uh, if the Jacobites had got in, that would have been the end of constitutional monarchy. We'd have, Britain would have moved back to a system where uh, where monarchs were not limited by the constitution anymore. The whole the whole glorious revolution would have been for naught, and and I'd be going <laughs> about this, but because it's set in the fantasy world. It is definitely the fantasy world, and it's been over-romanticized, but then every war on Earth has been over-romanticized. Yes. From all sides. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I want the gloves off that one really quickly. Now, one of the fascinating things, if you actually take time to study Scottish clan culture, there were enormous cultural differences that were salt in the sore of the English. And when a lot of these Scots got deported and sent over here, they started mixing with the with the Native American tribes, and you will find a huge number of Scottish and Irish marriages into the Cherokee. It's enormous, mm-hmm. because culturally, their clan system matched. And one of the things that was so badly misunderstood, and I'm not trying to polish up the Jacobites, okay, because they were idiots, but there was a policy in the Highlands of you would raid the other guy's cattle to prove your young men could provide. Yeah. And they would raid your cattle right freaking back again. And if you didn't get caught, you were wife material. It was very much like the Native American concept of counting coup. Mm-hmm. Well, when you go and raid the British cattle, they don't get it that this is a proving ceremony for young men and they're expected to come raid the cattle right back again. So there were a lot of cultural differences that just 
were insurmountable. And I went across to Korea before I did the Empire Series with Ray, and a lot of my experience on that trip to the Orient, we used bits and pieces of it. But one of the interesting things was I came back just chastened because we really don't get the other culture. And to give you an example, I went over to visit a cartoonist who was over there because he was doing animated um, Saturday morning cartoons, and they were all moved overseas because of the labor costs. He married a Korean wife, partly, I mean, and he had me over there because he wanted me to interact with her so she'd have an American friend and come to understand and have better English. But he said to me about a week or so into the trip, look, I'm really having a problem with my wife. I don't understand. I don't know if she's messing with my head or trying to hurt my feelings, but we'll go out. She'll admire a piece of jewelry. I'll spend this money and buy her a beautiful gift, and she'll never wear it. In fact, she'll leave it in the drawer, still in the wrapper. And I don't know whether to be hurt. I don't know whether she's playing the game. So he said, can you get to the bottom of this for me, woman to woman? So it took me a few days to get her to talk. She didn't see why she needed to. She finally told me, very emotionally, that in her culture, if a man gives you a gift, if you don't honor him and you don't care about him, you'll wear it all the time. If you care about him, you'll wear it once in your life. If you truly hold him in your heart, you will leave it in the original wrapper and you will enshrine it in a drawer. This is too precious to wear. Right. And I told her, well, you know, in American culture, if you don't wear the piece of jewelry that your boyfriend gives you or your husband... That's, and I slapped my face, and her eyes got huge. She said, really? It was so off base from her, for her. She just couldn't conceive. So how many misunderstandings at the peace table happen because of cultural assumptions? They're as simple and basic as that. And I think the answer to that is often. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the subtle things. The subtle things. In, in college, for a while there, I studied Arabic because I thought I might visit the Middle East. It's an incredible language for writing poetry and philosophy. It's very poetic. It's in a language that does emotion beautifully. But if you want to do something logical or learn how to repair a car or fly a plane or do something practical that requires logical, you have to learn German or English. So here we are with trying <laughs> to be logical with a culture that's very poetic and emotional and addresses the fire in the soul. How can you get the two things to meet when the culture and the language shape the response? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it plays into our stereotypes of what we think of as German people and, and Americans being very production-oriented. So, yeah, that does that is interesting. So I think it's just, through, we're, yeah. we're very human underneath the skin, but it's the, it's the cultural um, cultural fog that we don't see through. Mm-hmm. Well, given your um, interest in how cultural cultures influence the politics and your overall interest in politics and even the research you've done in weapons, um, you're using all of this to build worlds with your writing. And you, your your novels are epic in size, and then you add the fact that there's series beyond that. How do you keep it all straight? What techniques are you using? Well, on this, I have actually done four one-offs, so not everything I do is related. They're complete four separate books that are totally disrelated to anything else. For the big series that I've been working on for a long time now, 
I have several different methodologies. The first thing is I have a good map, and it's geologically pretty sound. It isn't, you know, rivers don't run uphill and so forth and so on. Um, I and also that's where have being a very would be a good advantage. You can draw your own map. I, said I that's can draw my own map, do yeah. all the calligraphy, all that. <laughs> yep. Um, the second thing is that there are ages past and ages forward, so I know my history and my future history, and I know what not to show, because the story, the area where the story encompasses is about 500 years, and I don't care if stuff that I know that happens 3,000 or 30,000 years later, I know where this story is going to. Those things will never show in this particular piece of work. How do I keep the piece of work straight? It's pretty simple. I took big, huge sheets of graph paper and stuck them together, and I put all the factions across the top and the characters, and I put the date going straight down. And each of those pinpoints which chapter and which book, which faction does what action. So it's a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you right to the year exactly what happened in which volume, in which chapter, so it makes it very quick to flip back and forth and reference because, of course, when I started this, there were no search functions. And the rest of it's in my head. Now, I have a file card system that goes over history, so significant dates, births, deaths, and the 30-something years of back or 50,000-something years of back history and the X 50,000 years of future history. That's all in there, too. Um, and then the rest of it's on scraps and napkins and stupid pieces of notes that nobody... But me could probably figure out, but that doesn't matter because the 99.9% is in my head. But I do have those reference tools. They're pretty basic. A pencil and a ruler and some graph paper did it all and still does. And how does that feed into how the books are structured? Because, again, you're doing more than one side of the story. Well, I did a lot of things differently than most epic fantasies do. Um, first of all, this book, it's projected to be 11 volumes, and I'm right on schedule. I just finished the ninth, so i got two more to go. They do not sprawl, they deepen. So when you actually read the first book, everything that's coming is implied or hinted at, or there's a little bit of a hint dropped. When you read that first book again after you finish book last, you're going to see a whole different landscape. Some things in that first book are, are designed to appear like a medieval society, you find out later it isn't. But I left that sort of cloak and illusion in place because it was too much to bite off to put everything into volume one. So what people are going to find is what looks traditional in the big series isn't. It's going to take a radical turn. It's just I chose my timing to unveil it. So, you know, yeah, the magical sword, but it isn't what you think it is. The, you know, the medieval-looking society, suddenly you get to arc three, boom, it's different. And you start realizing how different, and the forces and dynamics of how this world works are not what you expected in book one, because book one had to stage the conflict and develop the characters. Book two had to lift it and broaden that conflict. Book three takes it to world level, arc three takes it to world level, arc four stages for the mysteries, and the fifth arc, which is one volume, will denude everything. So there's this overall structure of each arc, of which there are five, and the middle one is the longest, there are five books in it. Mm -hmm. Develops you... a different stage, and also handles a different, the conflict changes vector, it changes direction. 
at the end of each arc, so it takes it to the next stage. So that's the overall structure. It goes one volume, two volume arc, a five volume arc, a two volume arc, and a one volume finish arc. That's the overall structure. What I did differently is the actual chapter structure. I don't know if you open the book and look, but there are Roman numeral chapter sets. Mm -hmm. There's a main chapter that will run me anywhere from 30 to 40 manuscript pages, and then there's two sub-chapters that run anywhere from 5 to 20 pages, and then there's three one-liners that are just three one-line pastiches at the end of each set. What that enabled me to do was carry the main action, focus on two minor things, and then take those big, long, dull scenes that you really don't want to read about and up the action to here in one sentence. This happens, and those are always written present tense. Because one of the things I hated about the way many epic fantasies are structured is you follow this group of characters and then you stop, you go back six months, you follow the same group of characters for six months until everybody's current. I hate that. I've gone through the bends to make this series only go simultaneous or forward. The action never flashes back. The events are always simultaneous or forward, even unto the logistics of moving one character across a certain landscape, how many days it would take. The action has to be either simultaneous or forward, so you're never going back six months to see what happened then. And that structure of chapter, two sub-chapters, three one-line flashes enables me to be very fluid in encapsulating areas of action that would just be dull if it was written out. Okay. Since you've been writing this, this series for so long and you've had it in your head for even longer, have you ever gotten to the point at in the later books where you're like, oh gosh, I can't do this again. I wish I'd taken a different different turn back there in book two. Well, do you ever no, have those regrets? No. I'll tell you why, because I didn't start selling this until it was all on the ground. I know what I'm doing with it. By the time I had book one, I sold it as a finished book. I knew inside out and upside down what I was doing. I knew why every single scene and every single word was placed in that book. I haven't had that problem because to be blunt, that's the other beef I have with fantasy. The characters don't evolve. They go through these huge life-changing events, and then you open the next book in the series, and they're still sulking like a teen behind the bush. Or they're still, you know, unable to figure out the girls. Sorry, my characters evolve. When they go through a major life-changing event, they come back and they are different. In the next book, they've learned from it, or they've entrenched their belief system Whatever it is they've done, they evolve and until the vessel shatters again. And each arc point, usually there's a lot of vessels shattered. And even secondary characters will start on one foot with one set of beliefs and get completely destroyed and come back with a 180-degree change in view because they realized they were standing on an untenable theory. They were acting off information that was not true. So very much the way life evolves the characters are not going to be the same person they began. There will be qualities that are the same because the dynamic of what drives them, but how they apply it and how that dynamic grows shifts. So the character that's in volume nine is not going to be the same character that stepped onto page one. They're, they're going to be deeper. They're going to be more life experienced. They're going to, the fascination and the drive and the, what makes them tick will have 
matured. So I don't find that I can't keep going because I've done the same thing over. Because to be blunt, I'm not doing the same thing over. Right. Let's take a musical break. <laughs> but first, could I uh, apologize to people who have been looking on our website for our Donna Fletcher Crow interview? I just didn't make it to the feed. We had a glitch, as they say. Uh, Donna's agreed to be interviewed again. And we'll let you know when that happens so you'll get a chance to hear her. Right now, here's our music.
That was Dancing Sea by Noreen Bruin on the Magna- on the album Modern Ang- Anguish, which you can find at the Magnatune website on magnatune.com. Okay, I just started the book To Ride Hell's Chasm this week, and I was struck by how very visual the settings are, Janny. It should come as no surprise since you're also a talented artist. Are you deliberately painting with words when you write, or is that just one of those things that comes naturally to you? I think that bringing the creative experience to the table, as a creative person, you have the obligation to bring the best that you have to whatever platform you're applying it to. So yes, I am a visual artist. I'm also a musician. I bring those perceptions to the table when I write. And some people may say, well, this is too much. I can't handle it all. Other people finish the book and say it actually changed how their brain worked. They actually noticed things they never would have noticed. It's a proven fact that if you practice something, it changes the neuronal connections in your brain. If you listen to music, it improves your cognitive function, makes you a better learner. This is definitively proved by scientific experiment that art and education programs up the perception level, the amount of data that your brain can process. So when I write, I bring you the best of my experience. Now I make sure that it relates to the story. I don't throw descriptive elements in that don't add to the mood or atmosphere or don't relate to the character or don't in some way connect to the scene. But it's going to bring you into that world so, with so much vivid clarity, the experience at the end of the book will be more dramatic. It will have a more searing impact. Mm-hmm. People can't skim my style. When they try, they throw the book across the room and they walk away and say it's terrible. I make sure that they have to read every word. If they don't read every word, they won't be immersed in the experience. They won't walk away from this book with anything that they couldn't have got. It's like you taste every piece of popcorn when you're watching a movie. If you're eating a popcorn read, what kind of quality experience did you bring to the table? I'm not writing a popcorn read. I'm not writing something that's going to be forgotten. If you finish these books, love them or hate them, you probably aren't going to forget them. So I I feel I have an obligation as a human being to bring the best that I have to my art. And that doesn't just go by visual or whether I hear a sound a certain way or what I can evoke of that experience of seeing the world like an artist in a written story. It also carries over into what can I bring from my personal experience to these books. Now, I've sailed yachts offshore. I've handled reenacting weapons. I've done, I've ridden horses all my life. Mm-hmm. I've had experiences which add sharpness and add clarity to the experiences in the book. I've done wilderness trekking. I've done outward bound. All those things get put into the story so that if you're having an armchair experience of reading my book, you're going to get the echo of what it was really like to do this stuff. And I often or occasionally get letters from people where they write me and they say, you know, I had never done such and so, but I read your book and I just had to try it. It awakens something in them. I've gotten 
letters from people who said, I have a friend who's blind, and I always wondered how to describe colors to them, and you gave me the words. Mm -hmm. Those kind of letters are rare, but they bring you to tears because you realize that some little thing that you did made a difference, and you weren't even trying. So I, I do my honest best to bring to the books some piece of profound experience from my life so that you don't walk away bankrupt. I, I gave think, you something of myself for taking the time to read. I think when you you mentioned it being immersive, I think that is very much your style of writing. You are very much immersed in the characters and the scene, the smell of the, you know, the smoke. It's all there. When you finish the book, watch what happens to the impact of the ending because of that immersion. But the person who wants to keep steering on the on the tiller too hard, they don't want to give up themselves. They don't want to immerse in the story. They don't want to become that other character. Forget it. Go read a popcorn book, which you can, you know, just be this for a day and walk away and not be touched. My books aren't going to be like that. Right. So I say they, they say weed out the people who aren't appropriate because the style itself repels them because they don't want to let go. Well, in addition to writing the novels, you also create the covers for them, or at least most of them. Um, and you do a cover for the British version and a cover for the U.S. edition. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay. And you've mentioned in previous interviews that you, you, your combining words and images seamlessly has been a lifelong ambition. How do publishers react to you wanting to take ownership that way, of wanting to do the covers? Well, I don't know if they've actually said ownership. I mean, I only had a little bit of a fracas, and that was over my first novel because they were a little scared of giving me that much power. But to be honest, I broke in as an illustrator separately as a writer. I sold the novel. I sold paintings. I was already doing both at a professional caliber when I came in, so it made sense to put the two together. Right now, um, I don't have any problem with this at all. It's very smooth sailing, really, because... Who better than the author to know the mood and the, the atmospheric grab for the book? And so the books sometimes have had better sell-through because the atmosphere on the cover matches the atmosphere in the book. I'm less apt to misfire because I'm not deluding the reader. Mm -hmm. um, some people say, well, I don't want to know what the author thought. I would rather make up my own. And my answer to that is you have one shot while I'm alive to see it how I saw it. You have all the years after I'm gone to have any illustrator you want, draw any picture you want. Why not get the vision straight from the source? Um, and in front of me when I grew up was Howard Pyle's paintings at the Brandywine River uh, Museum. And there is a writer-illustrator, bar none, who taught many of the top caliber illustrators of his day. Don't tell me it can't be done. Mm -hmm. So... I notice there's a very big difference between the British covers and the the U.S. covers. How do you make that decision on, how do you identify the different covers? How would you say that, characterize them, I guess? How would you characterize the differences? At the time that I started illustrating for my own books, the American covers were portrait-oriented. The American market wanted to see the characters. The British did not want to see the characters. They wanted the open sense of the freedom of the landscape. And when I asked my editor about this, she said, well, we live in a more crowded country and people want to get away to the wild spaces or they want to feel like the freedom of that open landscape. So I had to adapt my translation of what to put on the cover 
to those two prerequisites, a character-oriented cover for the U.S. and a landscape-oriented cover for overseas. Now the thrust has shifted to a more iconic graphic cover because back when the characters were on the cover, back when a lot of the epic fantasy was getting going here, every you know, the Dragonlance and the gaming, they wanted to catch the gamers. So a lot of my early books in the U.S. really missed, I think, in some ways, their target market, because I'm not writing for gamers. <laughs> gamers want to play war. This book isn't quite that. So now they're, they're more of a graphic, iconic cover, saying this is a little bit more of a mature read. So the U.S. and the British cover are actually the same book now, because I'm publishing out of London. It's distributed in the U.S. by Trafalgar. So we've gone to a more graphic look. Well, I'm a graphic artist. I, I can paint figures, I can paint landscapes, which way do you want to see it? It's a matter of how do you translate the symbolism mm -hmm. to get that image to represent the story. And uh, even in the character-based covers, there's a lot of symbolism buried in the imagery. Yeah, they're very complex covers. But I get to play, so, you know, where another illustrator's got to go on to the next book, I've got months to think about what I'm going to paint, and because it's my book, I'm going to be more careful. So, yeah, I usually add an extra layer of stuff in it. Mm -hmm. But that's because it's my baby. That's just done for love, you know? Right. Are you creating paintings based off your stories beyond just the cover? Absolutely. There's a massive artwork. Um, I have a sketchbook that Don gave me for Christmas that he said, draw all your places because you're not going to, nobody else is going to know what they look like if you don't. So I started doing black and white pencil drawings. I've got an extensive gallery of color paintings because each time I do a graphic, iconic cover, it's made for three or four paintings. They're combined in Photoshop, so I'm actually doing the painting and then recombining to make that iconic image. So there's a lot of artwork here that has never been seen. There's some of it that's up on my website. Mm -hmm. There's more that can be done. There's more in the in the conception stages. I'm just waiting for the moment when this series catches on like crazy and I can compile it all under one cover along with some stories written in different areas of history You know, to make a compendium to go with this, but even if it never happens, I still have the satisfaction of I've created all this body of work. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that on your website, in fact. Um, go into the gallery section and you'll see right. the Paravia sketchbook. And there's areas um, in that gallery section that are devoted to how the cover art went together. You can see some of the iconic images assembled from their base paintings. Um, so, But there's more here than I've put on the website definitely and again it's just time I don't have the time to organize it all because I'm too busy drawing and painting and writing to get get the current deadline in that's a great reason not to get it all organized I figure there'll be time or there'll be a moment when um, that becomes the right thing to do uh, well to, uh, talking about covers ever since I failed to ask Vicki Peterson what what she thought of the book cover that featured her superheroine archer carrying a sword have made a point of asking about wild covers. So which was your least favorite cover and which was your, mo your, mo your most favorite? My least favorite cover of all the ones that I had to do for my own book, and it was a turning point issue, was the Bantam reissue for Sorcerer's Legacy. Uh -huh. The painting that I wanted has never, ever gone on that book yet. And I'm just waiting for the day that I can correct that. 
that image was what the the company line wanted on the cover, and I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It destroyed me to paint it because it depicts the heroine as this kind of shrinking violet, and it depicts this the wizard in the background as this very clean shaven, very that the heroine is a spitfire. She's on her feet slugging. She's not a man. She doesn't do it with a sword. She does it with female um, bravado as a woman. Mm-hmm. She uses her smarts, as, and there are quite a number of scenes where she has to deal with tough situations, but she does not do it with violence or with force. She does it as a woman would use force. And so I hate that cover with a passion. And when I got done, I was just, I took it to New York, and I just sat it down in front of the people who were hiring me to do it, and they said, oh, aren't you thrilled? Aren't you glad we had you do it this way? And I said, is it my lips? And I came home and I said to Dawn, I will never, ever, ever, ever prostitute myself like that again. Never. If they want to tell me what the image is and tell me what my characters look like and tell me what the pose they have to be in and tell me what I can and can't have in the background, just go hire another pair of hands that doesn't care. If they're hiring me for my cover, they are going to get my vision or nothing. And from that point forward, I painted the covers before they saw anything. And I turn them in pretty much done. I don't follow. I don't give them a sketch. I send them the working drawings sometimes when they work um, portrait style so they could work out the type, but they didn't even know. I'd say, well, this will be a gray or this will be a blue cover. This will be a basically red cover. But they don't see it really until it's assembled and done. Because I just feel that if you want my vision, then put my vision on the cover and trust me to do a good job. Of course I'm going to do a good job. It's my own book. I'm not going to hand in something that's graphically terrible and can't be seen across the room. So I've stuck by that line, and luckily I've had people on the other end who truly appreciate what's happening, and they're pleased with the look of the books. I mean, I had a scary moment when we switched to the graphic covers because my London editor said, oh, by the way, we're doing a graphic cover. In fact, um, Hell's Chasm's U.S. paperback is a graphic cover that I didn't see coming. They took elements from the full full landscape cover and created that, and it's not yes. what I would have done if it was a... So I hate that cover. It gives the wrong impression of the book, too. But the good part is they kind of dropped it on me. They said, oh, by the way, we're going to redo these as graphic covers, and the meeting's happening on Tuesday. Well, this was Friday, and they were going to hire another artist, and I just... Holy Moses, I panicked because I know how to do graphics. I said, why on earth didn't you ask me? Of course I could have given you sketches. Oh, well, we feel. So I said, okay, fine. I got till Tuesday till your meeting. So I sat down that weekend and with colored pencils and magic markers and crayons and every piece of gallery art that I'd drawn in the sketchbook and done with Photoshop. And with his Photoshop skills, my cobbled together bits of knowing what areas of Photoshop he didn't know. I said, well, I know this is possible. I've seen it done. We can find it in the manual somewhere. We produced 18 composites of graphic art sketches, and I was drawing, 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 and then scanning and throwing this in 18 different ones. And the laugh of it was the first one went. <laughs> so they walked into this meeting with 18 color sketches that I sent over as JPEGs, and they gave me the job. I won't even pretend that the amount of time I spend on them um, makes ends meet for the paycheck, but I'm happy with the look of the book. I think it's effective. 
so you know you got to keep your ear to the ground i guess and i felt if if a better man walked into that meeting with a better set of drawings than i had and they wanted that well at least i'd had my shot yeah yeah fair enough well i must say that while you were doing that i looked at your cover for sorcerer's legacy and that is <laughs> that is just wrong. I did. I looked at it too, and I'm like, it's very different from the rest of your work. You see why I hate it so much? Yeah, that was the day I decided no more, no more preliminary sketches. I, mean, I have a very organic way of creating these covers, and I do not do a preliminary sketch. I do the I just plain sit down with the drawing, and I draw it, and then I paint it. Bang. The the whole point of the heroine in that book is that she refuses to crawl under any circumstances. Well, that was it. I was just inside crying, and so that cover is hanging in my writing room with the ones that I am proud of as a lesson to me. Um, and I, I didn't make that mistake with a book where it was bought and an editor had it that wanted changes done to it um, and a different ending on it, and it was all commercial pressure to increase profit margin, and I stuck by my guns, and I bought that book back. I said, I can't publish this under my own name it won't happen um i'll give you back your money and i'll take my chances on reselling it and it was scary because it took me quite a number of years to find a place to put it but um i think i was right to stand by my guns it sold here it sold in britain it went through seven reprints here i don't know how many in britain but it sold hundreds of thousands of copies and so um i was right to hold my guns on that one Mind you, I don't think you, the Grafton cover for the Sorcerer's Legacy was any good either. No. That was done me, by you either. That, that no, Grafton was it a devil <laughs> behind this naked girl? Uh-uh, definitely not. It wasn't. Um, I have yet to see the cover I want to put on that book. I believe on my website you might be able to look under the Wizards section in the gallery and see a painting called Ice Bridge by Sorcery. In the early part of this interview, I described that I sat up in the studio and painted this frigid coal painting to send it That's to England right. on a hot yeah. summer day. That was the seed of this story. That was the one that invented the whole thing. And that's the image I would have put on the cover. It's all in primary colors. It's very strong. The heroine is definitely not cringing, and the wizard looks roughed up. Yes. Yeah, it's just irrelevant, is <laughs> the, the Grafton cover. I think they were going through a phase at the time. Every cover they had was rubbish. They were looking for a corporate look, I think. Some of them were gold. The cover that Jeff Taylor did for the original British version of, of uh, Storm Warden is brilliant. Oh, it's gosh. beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. The portrait isn't, you know, it's it's a... It's a landscape and a portrait combined, but I really like that cover. And he also, Jeff Taylor also did a Master of White Storm, and that one was even better. Mm -hmm. um, I love those covers very, very much. Um, when that man is on, he's on. But, you know, yeah. time, times have changed, and I had to prove to Britain that I could, I could, you know, because the collaboration sold in Britain, and then they picked up all my backlist. I think they went for trying to make the books look like Ray's, and in a way that's a mistake too, because me solo and Ray solo are kind of different animals. Yeah, uh, um, they they like to um, they like to build on success, don't they, publishers? They don't like to take a risk, try something new. No, but a straightforward 
action adventure fantasy style book that Ray does is not what I'm doing at all. Yeah. It has moments that are like that, but um, so the readers I find that come over from Sorcerer's Legacy, I mean, come over from Empire Books, they're better off reading Sorcerer's Legacy or better yet, Hell's Chasm than just tackling the big series right off the bat until they get a little bit adjusted. But those two are easy entry points from Empire or even Cycle of Fire would be easier. Um, it's different. Cycle of Fire, beginning with Stormwarden, just came out in audio, unabridged from Audible. So that's pretty readily available now. But So when they plunge right into the big series, I think they don't, some of them don't stick with it long enough to really see what it's going to become. They assume it's this or assume it's that. And so I'm yeah. not I'm not real good with the impatient reader. That's um, it, the the experience will reward you tremendously, but you have to get to the end. Yeah, and so even for the big series, to see the the major things that are are truly different in the big series, you have to get to the middle books, the middle arc. That's where it really starts to to happen. But I can't carry nine levels of awareness in book one it has to be done dramatically piece by piece so when you see a scene and you go well that doesn't it isn't sprawling at all all that stuff's going to come back and it's going to reassemble in a different way than you thought and what i often get is the reader saying i just have to start this book over because i now that i see it i gotta see it again yeah now that i see what's coming yeah you've got to work out where the where the earlier cards were played so um, so that brings us to your ongoing series, The Wars of Shadow, Wars of Shadow and Light. What, which is the most recent one that's out? It's time to make your plug. The most recent one that is available on the bookshelves now is called Stormed Fortress, and it is the arc finale of the third arc, which means a lot of the things that were introduced are going to come to a head and even resolve. So don't start there. You need to start with book one. The newest book that I have just completed, it's going to be turned in in 10 days, is Initiate's Trial. And that is the first book of the fourth arc, which the overarching title is sort of the canon. It will be two volumes long. And at this point, um, I would say midpoint of the third arc, Peril's Gate, is tipping point for the series. The thing begins to converge, and the pace gets faster and faster, and where when you went from second arc to third arc, the pace geared back just a little because I was restaging for worldview. Now I'm staging for the mysteries, but the pace does not let up because we're past tipping point. Ideally, when a long form work, it's going to gather pace as it gets, the further it gets. When you hit that tipping point at the center, it's going to go faster. It's going to pick up. Too many series don't do this mm -hmm. or just, finished too quick or whatever. This has been so carefully orchestrated. So the pace, even though it's an arc opener, we're already into convergency for the series. It is staging for the mysteries. The pace is very quick. And the next book is just going to blow the doors off. The final volume is all dominant. At that stage, everything is in motion. And everything is developed, and it's all finished. So you'll get kind of a, a microcosm taste of this because each of the books does the same thing. The, the last quarter of the book, the action is relentless, even the last half in some cases. You'll hit that midpoint climax and everything left turns. The series takes on the same structure and each individual arc takes on the same structure. I don't cliffhang my volumes, if that makes sense. 
Yes. They they always have a stop point. Yes. Good. But they're not interchangeable as far as the order and because they're set up in arcs and each arc has a title like mid arc is alliance of light. You don't start with book one alliance of light. No, you start at the beginning because it's one story. I should. So there you are, folks. <laughs> Begin at the beginning. And you mentioned that you've got a number of books on audio format now as well. Audible just completed Storm Warden and Keeper of the Keys and Shadowfane, which is the Cycle of Fire series. It's the only coming of age quest series I ever did, but it's got a difference. It's got a real twist in the middle. It was really, really cool to work with them because I wrote them and I said, how do we pick the narrator? And they said, well, who do you like? And so I listened to reams of narrators and I sent them the, the two that I absolutely loved, who are, of course, top-notch, very well-known narrators. And they said, well, we can't get either one of these, but it matters that you, you gave us a steer. They picked David Thorpe. He's phenomenal. He just did yeah. a stellar job. He, he's British, but very, very clear. He's got a gorgeous <coughs> voice. Not only that, I took GarageBand and I recorded all of the pronunciations and sent them over an audio file. He went by it, so everything sounds the way it should sound. It's incredible. Nice. That's you can very go nice. to my website. Audible allowed me to put the first chapter up for free, so you can listen to the first chapter right off the Audible, right Audible's production right off the website. See if you like it. Um, so I'm very excited about it. It's kind of bizarre because <laughs> there's no print book. The editor had remembered this series from HarperCollins way, way, way back, and had approached me. So, you know, it's sort of out there as an audio book, and not much else right now. Nice. It's nice to, to know that you create memories for people like that. Well, I've, I've gone out of my way to make it easy. I've got excerpts, full chapter excerpts of most of the books that are free downloads. For, they've been made available for e-readers, or you can read them straight on site. I've also taken GarageBand, and my reading isn't professional, but it's clear. I've made audio files. So the first three chapters of Hell's Chasm as a clear reading it isn't as good as a narrator, but at least you could listen to it on your commute and get three chapters, see if you like the book. So all that, all those resources are there because I prefer happy readers. By all means, test the book out, and if you think you'll like it, get it. But you don't have to pick blind. The resources are on the website. And what's the website address? www.paravia.com slash Jenny Words, spelled with an S, or just look up my name, and it will come up on a Google search or whatever. It's right there at the top. It's very easy to find my website. And or we type will in any any book cover, any book title will bring it up to Paravia. We'll make sure we link to that on our website too when we post the show notes. Yeah, I think if you do a, a .com after my name, it it will mirror. Just not every browser picks up that link. Right. So it's pretty, and you can even spell my name wrong, and it'll probably come up. <laughs> the Z. <laughs> um, you don't need to remember the complicated website, either a, t a book title or my name, or check out my stuff on Amazon, get the spelling of my name, do a Google search. There aren't any other Janny Wurtzes, to my knowledge, on the Internet last time I checked. <laughs> I'm not hard to find. Great. Well, Janny, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's just been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Well, you're a great bunch, and thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure, actually.
Off the Shelf is produced for Radio Real by Kegia Gerardi and Simeon Beresford. Technical production is by Radio Real. You can find Radio Real on the web at radioreal.org. Music on this program includes works by artists on the Magnatune label. The music in the general introduction is John Playford's All in a Garden Green by Eileen Hadidian and Natalie Cox from their album Dolce Musica, A Contemplative Journey. The -the off-the-shelf theme music is 1500 Tons by Burning Babylon from the album Stereo Mashup. And we bid you goodbye with this piece, Hagagasan 14 by Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. You can learn more about Magnatune and their artists on their website at magnatune.com. Off the Shelf is licensed under Creative Commons.